Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic teens and adults become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. The majority of businesses, at least in the United States, now have an open floor plan. I remember reading a study of 10,000 employees that work in open office spaces, and about a third of those employees said that they had to leave the office just to get work completed because it was too stressful. These spaces can be stressful for just about anyone, but especially when you are autistic. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Michaela Ackerman, co-author of Edge of the Playground, about what strategies autistic and neurodiverse employees can employ to make these spaces less challenging. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Michaela, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I would say there are a lot of words that describe you, but one word that can be used is author. You and your mother wrote a book together called The Edge of the Playground, a mother and daughter's memoir from childhood to adult. How did this book become about? So my mom actually started writing this book um, when I was diagnosed, which was when I was around six or so. Um, And she just started documenting, you know, our journey and um, our experiences. It obviously got put on the back burner for a long time because there was so much going on um, and, you know, she wanted to be respectful of my privacy as well. So it was just kind of something she started. And then when I got older, I knew that I wanted to get into autism advocacy and give back to the community. So at that point, after college and after law school, I launched uh, the Edge of the Playground blog, really with the intent to help people who are transitioning into adulthood, because I noticed myself there was such a gap in um, resources, especially for myself when I was going through those transitions, and I wanted to help other people. And as the blog grew, started getting, you know, parents and other autistic people who were following it, not just for adulthood transitions, but childhood things as well. And so we revisited the book, and I ended up co-authoring it with her and sharing my perspective um, along with her to have just kind of both of us in there to describe what our journey was and what we did um, and advice that we had for other people. New experiences lead us to discover more about ourselves. So I'm wondering, was there anything you learned from the experience of writing this book that maybe you didn't know about yourself previously? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, starting to write about my experiences with autism opened my eyes to, um, you know, differences between uh, our neurologies, I guess you could say. So, like, I didn't always have the words to describe what it felt like um, to not be able to filter out background noise or have sensory overload, those kinds of things. And I also didn't know that... um, neurotypicals were able to do those things and that to them, you know, it, it wasn't like a big deal to go to the grocery store or the lights didn't hurt their eyes. So I've learned a lot about like the differences between us and the development and also the similarities and that helped me learn a lot more about myself too. 
Now, you already talked about your the blog that you've written about all your life's experiences. One of the blog posts that you wrote about I really enjoyed, which was about seven recommendations for working in an open office space. I'd say that that type of environment is probably difficult just for about anyone, but especially those with sensory sensitivities. Now, your first recommendation is to request a corner cubicle or an end of a row. How do you think this could be helpful to someone with sensory sensitivities? So um, there's different kinds of open offices, so this is just based on the experience of the type that I'm in. Um, but with my open office, we still have dividers between the cubicles, which is really nice. Um, and if you don't have that and it's just one big desk, I would definitely ask um, management about potentially getting a privacy screen. But we're in just regular cubicles. And there are rows of cubicles. So for me, being on, you know, the end of the row kind of decreases uh, the people that are passing me. So I don't have a lot, of, a lot of traffic behind me. So it really just depends on how the cubes are configured. I would see, you know, which cubicles have the least amount of people passing by it every day. Uh, just in terms of, like, is there a certain cubicle where everyone is always passing it? because that's how you have to go to get out the door um, or something like that. So if you, if you notice that in the office and you see there's a less traffic area, then I think picking one of those cubicles is a lot better. How do you feel that it would affect you if you weren't in a corner cubicle or at the end of a row? Um, I think it would be a lot harder. It's already difficult to focus with that much going on around me. And so I definitely think that it's an accommodation that anyone should be able to ask for uh, pretty easily, um, especially if there's the space. And uh, it definitely helps my productivity and my focus and even my social interaction because when I'm not as stressed out about things happening behind me or around me, then it's easier for me to interact socially with uh, my coworkers. Now, another recommendation you had is one based upon self-advocacy, which is to ask that people warn you before approaching. What would be a better way for people to communicate with you in the office? Yeah, so I've noticed that um, in the office itself, it's actually not just uh, people with sensory sensitivities that prefer um, to have, you know, um, an email, or um, we have something called Skype where you can basically instant message somebody before walking over. So that kind of normalizes it in a sense because a lot of people do like to have that kind of time to think and initial warning. Um, and also if you do have an instant message in your workplace, um, there's different statuses you can set yourself to. So say you're in the middle of a project that requires all of your focus and you really can't um, evoke, uh, you can't handle like someone coming up without warning at that point. You can set your status to busy, um, which is kind of a cue to other people uh, not to bother you until that status is set to available. Or, um, you know, you can just kind of gently um, give nonverbal type of cues 
too. I find if I have like noise counseling headphones on or headphones in general, that tends to be a nonverbal cue to other people not to approach or that you're busy. Um, so that can also be helpful. You also in your blog talk about the importance of breaks. Why do you feel this is so important? And th- and is there a number of breaks per day someone you feel like should ideally take? Yeah, I think breaks are really important to like um, for self regulation and to reset, um, so you don't get overwhelmed. Any kind of setting I'm ever in, I make sure that I always have kind of an escape, so to speak. So I have a safe place I can go that's quieter um, and not overwhelming where I can recharge during the day, even if it's just for, like, a couple minutes. Um, And as far as, like, how many breaks to take, I think that's really up to the person. Um, It's whatever you need. And also, like, it depends on the job. So I would communicate with your coworkers and your managers about what you feel would help you. Um, whether it's like, you know, a break every hour or whatever it is. I think it depends on the, per- the person. What about fidgets? Do you ever use those in in your office? Um, I actually don't personally use them. I'm not someone that needs to fidget a whole lot, but I have a lot of coworkers that do use like stress balls and uh, other like fidget items. Um, and so that's definitely very helpful um, in terms of focus and I think it's actually something a lot of people do so it wouldn't um, bring a lot of attention if you're worried about that. Working in an open office there's going to be communication with your co-workers at one point or another. People wanting to share things about their life with you and wanting to know things about you. How do you decide what to share with them and what not to? Yeah, definitely. So it's really kind of a learning curve because workplace social cues are different than just regular cues. Like your coworkers um, care about you and they want to be your friends, but it's on a different level than say like your family or your best friend. So what I like to do is just start off with something general, like talking about what you did over the weekend or like if you have plans that night or if there's a TV show you like, maybe talk about that. But starting off with something general and then allowing them to kind of also join in the conversation. Because I know I have a tendency, especially if it's like something I really love, to just kind of go and um, talk about everything about it, to tell somebody about it. But that can make someone feel like they don't have a place in the conversation and can be seen as oversharing. So to avoid that, I just kind of start off more general, like, hey, if you watch this show, what do you think? And then allow them to chime in as well. Um, And then just keep it very kind of baseline. And I don't provide, like, the amount of detail that I might provide to um, a best friend or a family member. And I also don't provide as much information about my personal life office. I keep it very, like, neutral. So what you did over the weekend or interests that you have, but not necessarily like all my deepest, darkest secrets, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, earlier you were talking about privacy screens. Um, do you use these, and how have they been helpful to you? Yeah, um, so I don't currently have one right now, 
uh, because we have a limited number and I've been working from home a lot more. But I do have a couple other coworkers that have them, um, the ones that are in the more traffic cubicle areas. And so they're able, it's essentially like a door, like a makeshift door. Um, and you can attach it to the end of your cubicle and you can close it. Um, and that's really helpful. And I've seen people who, you know, don't even have um, sensory sensitivity using them and finding them extremely helpful because you're basically creating your own door in your own office environment. And then, like I said, if you have, like, a completely open office where it's just a desk and no um, barriers whatsoever, I would definitely see if you could ask for some type of privacy screen between the cubicles as well. What about noise-canceling headphones? Uh, have you used any of, of those before? Yeah, I actually use them all the time. Um, it really helps. Like I said, it helps uh, let people know that I'm busy when I'm busy. People will tend to approach you if you have big headphones on. And then also it just really helps cancel out the noise. For me, and I don't know if this is for everyone, but for me, even when I'm wearing noise-canceling headphones, I can still hear a lot of stuff, but it definitely is more muted, so that helps me filter out all that sound. It especially helps with, like, the buzzing of the fluorescent lights, the sound of, like, the air conditioning going, things that are really loud to me, but not necessarily other people, and it just kind of drowns it out and helps me focus. I'm wondering... With every workplace, the culture is a little bit different, and one part of the culture that's all, that can be different is lunchtime culture. How does that work for you in an open office space? Definitely. So that's one of the things that's a learning curve, and it was a learning curve for me when I started the job. Luckily, I started the job with um, a couple other people, so we formed our own little lunch group in the beginning. As of Talking about open office space, that is just one of the many blog posts that you do have on, on your website. Can you share with our listeners what other topics you have blogged about? Yes, so um, I've done like a whole uh, college transition guide as an autistic person. So my experience transitioning to a four-year college and how to make friends and how to make a new routine, all of that. I have on the website. Um, I've also done pieces on executive functioning skills, things also about like explaining what it's like to be an autistic person just from my perspective. Um, so I have, you know, what it's like to grieve as an autistic person. I also have things about empathy um, because I feel that's a topic that can be misunderstood a lot and just kind of how we 
relate to people. It's different than how neurotypicals do it, but we still, you know, connect just in a different way. I really try to have both practical guides for people who are looking for advice and then also resources for, like, parents or families that want to understand what it's like to be autistic. And then if people want to purchase uh, your book... The Edge of the Playground, a mother and daughter's memoir from childhood to adulthood. How would they go about doing so? Yeah, so it's available on Amazon.com, both in paperback and in Kindle. And it's also text to talk, I think it's called, so it'll it'll read it to you, I believe. And then it also just became available through Barnes and Noble. So if you go onto the Barnes and Noble website you can order through there or you can go into a physical store and order in store. Now, if I order your book on Amazon, do will I get a signed copy from you? So not directly through Amazon. They'll just print and send it to you. But um, if you're interested in signed copies, I'd be more than happy to send one to you. Well, Michaela, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you so much to Michaela for the conversation. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, you can email us at autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Dane and Krista Capo about how art can be life-changing for autistic people. Talk to you then. Conversation is Even with